Hello, Mainly fans. It's great to be back here with you after the longest break in our show's history. Our regulars will note we haven't had a new episode drop in about three months. This was, I'm sad to say, less of a vacation for me than a need to focus on some other historical and life obligations. On the plus side, I now have a permanent position at my day job teaching at Bridgewater State University. This guarantees the roof over my head, under which I record this humble show, will remain over my head. I'm also happy to be back here with new episodes, starting off with a double release. This first here is something of a bonus episode. Over the winter, what had started out as a planned conversation with historian Dan Mandel about his work editing a collection of valuable primary sources in indigenous history with a big focus on Maine, turned into something else. When I told Dan I wanted to do a sort of shop talk episode about how historians go about collecting and editing primary sources for the public and for each other, Dan mentioned that the editor of this whole series, a scholar named Alden Vaughn, was also available to speak and happened to live down the street from Dan. For those who don't know, Alden Vaughn has been working in New England colonial history since 1965 and was a pioneering figure in the field. He was one of the first academically trained historians to do serious scholarship on indigenous colonial relations in early New England. Since then, he's been known for his work on, among other things, ideas of race in colonial America. So what started out as a conversation about the work of documentary editing evolved into a wider ranging discussion about that, but also about how the field of history has changed since those early days. If you're not here to learn how the sausage is made, then you might be more interested in our other new release on why so many 19th century Mainers believe they were surrounded by long lost Viking settlements. But if you enjoy behind the scenes approaches to history, then you won't want to miss this very special look into the craft of history. So without any further delay, here's my sit down with two of the great scholars of colonial New England talking shop. Let's do this. My guests today are Alden Vaughn and Dan Mandel, two distinguished early American historians for whom any additional introduction would be too much even. That's how accomplished you are. It's a real pleasure. Alden, Dan, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. Thank you. So today we are here to discuss my favorite collection of primary sources, Full Stop Bar None. It is known as Early American Indian Documents, Treaties and Laws, a 20-volume opus. Uh, it's a comprehensive document set 
on uh, indigenous history in, in early America. Alden, you are uh, a very accomplished and distinguished early American historian. And then among many feathers in your cap, you helmed this project. Uh, could you uh, just begin, uh, could you talk a bit about how this project got started and, uh, and what it was meant to accomplish? All right, gladly. Uh, in uh, early 1977, I got a phone call at my office at Columbia University from a man I had never met who introduced himself as the new owner, director, of a small publishing company founded by his father a few years earlier. And they'd made quite a bit of money, considerable success, selling sets of legal documents to primarily lawyers, law firms, libraries, using material that was already in the public domain and packaging it nicely, doing whatever editing was necessary. And now the son wanted to branch out and try some new areas of uh, endeavor and want to know if I would head up uh, a project of early American Indian treaties, that is treaties between the colonists and Native Americans and with ancillary documents so that this was not just the treaties themselves, many of which Ben Franklin, for example, had published back at the time, in the day, and uh, it would be related materials and laws passed by the colonial legislatures. And after some pondering, I thought, yes, for uh, I'll do that because, among other things, material will come in that I would have trouble getting a hold of because I was able to, uh, according to this uh, phone call, uh, I could appoint half a dozen or so associated editors or I thought this is great, I'm going to have access uh, from knowledgeable people that I can in some cases use in my own research. Well, a, later, uh, a few weeks later, this man, uh, John Moscato, wrote me a letter spelling out really what he had in mind and with a rough timetable. I can't believe how naive he was and I was to think there was any chance of accomplishing this. This was, the letter came in uh, early February of 1977. He thought that by summer, his editorial staff would have collected all of the materials that the board of directors and I asked him to collect and have them all prepared and ready for us to package into chapters and volumes and so forth. And that possibly by the end of the year, the first volume would be in print. (laughs) The fact is, 25 years later, we actually did complete the series. And that in itself, I think, is quite amazing. But it was touch and go all the way, a lot of... uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and there was at least one death of an editor along the way. Uh-huh. There were, there were resignations. There were, well, firings is too strong a term. What were the attempts to fire? Threats by the, by the publisher to fire, hmm. and the original publisher, incidentally, eventually was bought out by a bigger firm. Did you personally recruit the the editors yes. for each of these individual volumes? Yes. 
I like to think of this as kind of an Ocean's Eleven situation where you're kind of going and seeking out all these specialists and you're going, all right, all right, all right. We need a New England person. All right, get, get Mandel. He's, he's the one. He's the one. Well, there's kind of a, long, a longer story behind that one. I don't know whether you want to tell... Well, how, initially, how did you I, find was, Dan? Yeah. I, didn't, uh, I, I didn't have... I wasn't allowed enough editors to really cover the whole field as thoroughly as I wanted, especially since the publisher had said he strongly urged me to get someone with a, a, a credentials in the law so that the law clients he was used to selling to would be attracted by this set as well. And uh, I, I originally had someone on board, a fellow named Yasahiri Kawashima. Oh, yes. Uh, and he was going to sort of be the New England expert and the law expert, because he had a law degree from mm -hmm. uh, Japan. <clears throat> and uh, I hope that would satisfy the publisher in that regard. So uh, eventually, we had a party of the ways, let's say. Unfortunately, Dan came in, and that was marvelous. In, in 1977, I was still in college. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, things, things we all developed uh, quite, you know, the years have their, their benefits. Indeed, know. yeah. So, Dan, you joined this project, and you were the editor of the two of the Southern and West, of the Southern New England and Northern New England volumes. Right. And of my personal favorites, of course, as that's where my own work is. And for our podcast, this mm. would be, I believe it was volume 20 that, uh, that covers what's now Maine. Maine and, Maine and Western Massachusetts. Yeah. And Connecticut. So um, as, you, as you said about this, well, first of all, more broadly, for, for non-specialists, right, uh, what are the purpose of collections like these, like this volume? Wow, the purpose uh, is so documents that would be otherwise unobtainable would to to undergraduates, hopefully, as well as graduate students and law students, and perhaps more broadly the general public, would be brought together in one place and easily available with annotations, that is, explanations of names and places. Uh, which is certainly something I tried to uh, do a lot of, is to dig into who is this person. If you look, if, uh, in, in my two volumes, if you look in the, in, in the footnotes in the back, the end notes, you'll see a lot of very short biographies of individuals who are named in the documents, who otherwise might be mis you know, just names, uh, as well as ex explanations of places. Um, and of course, the series was begun and almost finished uh, before the internet really got going. Yeah. Um, and so it would have been, now it's it, I, perhaps, it's easier to get these kinds of documents um, with uh, archive.org and the things, many things have been reprinted. I remember when I started, particularly the Northern New England volume, getting documents from, I had to go to the printed sources, to the documentary history of the state of, of Maine, the printed volumes in order to get those and get permission to, to, to put them in the volumes and so on. 
Uh, now you could just go to archive.org for those. And right, because those are in the public domain. Those everything, are the... everything published before Great Gatsby, you're there. So that's changed. But what that doesn't offer, that this series does, are all the annotations. And the fact that all these documents are together in one place, and that makes a, 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 better, uh, a better source for students than general public to, to look and see what people were writing and saying and discussing at the time. Yeah. Um, and the brief I would make for, certainly for volume 20, for yours, as far as I know, for English language, these kind of primary sources, yours is, I think, the most comprehensive last stop where, yes, you use all the, all the documents in the history of state of Maine. So there's for, for listeners, in the 19th century, uh, various kinds of, oh, uh, curious guys with money, shall we say, went to Europe and transcribed a bunch of documents in the Netherlands and England and France. They translated them with varying degrees of skill. And then they brought, you know, they brought these back and published them. And in particular, the, the, the documents in the history of the state of New York Colonial, there's two set, there's two types, but there's a, I believe there's a 12 volume one mm. for New York. Uh, mm. And it drew from the Netherlands, France, uh, and England. And that's been one of the, the go-tos, and it's almost 200 years old. Um, and so there's a bunch of these different collections, and they kind of overlap. Your edited volume brings all these together, mm. plus uses uh, the Massachusetts State Archives and some other collections. And so to my mm. knowledge... NET, as I as I like to abbreviate yours, the New England Treaties Collection, gets gets at the most of these. But thinking about this, I think even as you know, academic historians like us, we talk a lot about what goes into doing like a solo authored book, right, a monograph or something. But we don't often, I think, discuss amongst ourselves as much about what goes into making an edited collection like mm. this. And I think that's unfortunate because mm. it's. You know, it's so important, right? It's such, it's so vital to so much of, of what we do. And so when you went, uh, when you went and, and set about doing this, this volume, right? Like what was your, what was your approach in terms of choosing what sources you wanted to use and, and how you went about arranging them? Well, I actually started out from the southern New England side of things. So mm -hmm. I knew about the Massachusetts archives and those volumes. And so um, I started with that. I knew about the documentary uh, history of the state of Maine. I knew about the New York volumes. So I went to all of those as well. And then I started thinking, well, you know, um, this, may have, this is a big difference, I think, between the 19th century collectors and late 20th century historians mm -hmm. is that we look at a place like northern New England and we look at the watersheds and we look at the course. I mean, you know, these, these folks are living, the native indigenous folks are living along watersheds and traveling up and down and going up to um, New France, Quebec, the St. Lawrence River. And so... You got to look at those records too. You have to think about the space, not simply as an area of English settlement, but as an area of an indigenous life and interrelationships with English folk 
uh, French folk, uh, Haudenosaunee folk, Iroquois mm-hmm. folk, and so on. Uh, so you have to look for those sources as well. So I looked at, I looked for Canadian archive sources as well and pulled mm-hmm. some material from that. And some of it, I unfortunately, my reading ability in French is very poor, has always been poor. It's even worse now because I haven't used them lately. Some A couple of sources that I found uh, of letters and such were in French. And so I had to get those translated because I wanted to get them in there. And I actually had a colleague at uh, Truman State University where I taught at the time, Timothy so Farley. Were you, I can't remember now, I should have looked, were, were any of your documents borrowed and brought over from the, the abbreviations, the CMNF, the, the Collection Manuscrits Nouvelle France. It's a four-volume set. It's like a French-language version of one of those 19th century collections. Um, also very important, and, you know, Anglophones don't use it. It's got a lot of good stuff for huh. people doing northern New England. I know I used it. You know, it's taken from some of those French and Canadian archives. It's, it's possible. I would okay. have to check the citation. Okay. <laughs> I have to check the end notes to the see where I got The reason I ask is because it hasn't been translated that's why uh-huh. okay. uh, it's a good you know it's one of those sort of ah did you go and yeah. actually do learn learn a language to do this or you know did you okay. only stick it's to english stone. language for kind of yeah i'm not sure whether it came from that or whether it actually came from one of the canadian archives okay and interestingly enough my colleague had even though he was very, very fluent in, 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 in new French literature and so on really well, he had major problems with it because he said it's this um, archaic form of the language and these words could be used in various ways. And he was baffled by some of the, the words actually that were in the document, hmm. uh, which I, I thought was kind of intriguing. I think I put that actually into the, into the annotation, the, the discussion of what the words might mean yeah, I find, uh, I mean, yeah, my, my French reading is not awesome. I, I, you know, I can do it. I work my way through it. And thankfully, so far, my, uh, my, my work so far, it benefited greatly from reading some French, but it didn't rely on it as much. The French had little to say about indigenous property, as far as I could tell, at least where I was looking at. But yes, everything is so indirect and so you know they use a, it's more than like triple quadruple negative and oh i would mm. i would hesitate to bother my liege <laughs> but i would not but wither hither yeah but, you know, oh gosh yeah so in terms of some of this other preparation is is there something is there other work that that went into did you you chose all the documents right yes. this was up to you yes okay yes i looked for and chose the documents and from the beginning, and I talk about this in the foreword, from the beginning I went at it with the assumption that by treaties we're looking at, or we should look at, any significant interaction between Native people and non-Native people, and actually sometimes between two groups of Natives, because there's points at which the Haudenosaunee are dealing with the Wabanakis mm-hmm. uh, in ways that have these overtones. And there's documents that capture that, that meeting in some way. The, my, my favorite document actually that kind of gets at my approach to this is uh, a, uh, a bill that a, a tavern keeper, I forget which town, some town outside of Boston, a tavern keeper submitted to the Massachusetts General Court asking to be reimbursed for 
food, drink, and damage done by a Haudenosaunee delegation <laughs> that was on a diplomatic trip to Boston, which uh, I thought kind of spoke to the human nature yeah. of, of dip- diplomacy as well as, you know, it's a reference point for that particular conference. I think I saw in the Massachusetts archives, um, I think by the 1740s, the, it was either Governor William Shirley or the legislature or the council or somebody came out and said, we're, we're not going to host any more indigenous delegations like this or we're going to do it differently because they partied hard and there <laughs> was did. way too yep. much. Yeah. Uh, they were. I know there was a Penobscot delegation that was invited to see a yeah. ship. And I guess there, there was definitely, I don't know if there was clumsiness or rum or both, where they broke windows on like the captain's cabin door and they, you know, there were all these other kinds of things. And so, you know, the legislature said, now we're not going to do this anymore. You know, we're going to, we're going to go up there or something like that. Mm. So yeah, absolutely right. Like those, those kinds of, of touches in there that can be, that can be good. Alden, I'm curious, uh, having assembled this collection, these edited collections are, a great source for scholars to do so much. And so of the work over the years that has come out benefiting from this collection, is there any scholarship in particular that you found particularly fascinating? It doesn't matter where it took place. It doesn't have to be Maine, but just in general, any, any early American scholarship that used this, this collection that you were... Well, of course, I don't taking. really know who's used the, the collection because unless I, I went through the notes and introductions and so forth uh, of uh, many, many monographs would, would I get a clue. Here and there I certainly have come across references to it. I think what's tending to happen now, I can't document this, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that many scholars are using these volumes to locate material that's of importance, then going sort of skipping over mm. us as intermediaries and going to other sources to for their citations and to say either to uh, those earlier collections from which we drew heavily mm. or even earlier than that going back to the original documents in mm. archives at, at the PRO in, in England and right. so forth yeah right uh, Dan particularly I think it's a good point and doesn't surprise me, I suppose, particularly a lot of these documents now are being digitized yes. and put online. <clears throat> uh, Mass Archives has put the Native American materials mm-hmm. online uh, and there's other collections as well. And while digitization has its problems and its mm-hmm. limits, if you use the collection in that way and then go online and see basically a, mm-hmm. a photocopy right. of yeah. the original document, um, that's that's a great use. Right, yeah. And I think that there are three volumes of, of laws, that is, mm-hmm. the treaties, and again, it was specified by by the, uh, by the John Muscata, the owner of uh, University Press of America and University Publications of America, when these volumes uh, were, were initiated. He wanted the laws and treaties to be in separate volumes. And... Uh, not only the editors thought that was a good decision, but it was made early and we stuck to it. And in the end, uh, I co-edited those three volumes 
with one of my graduate students who had a law degree. At any rate, I'm quite sure that, that those laws are now, again, jumping over somebody who would say, yes, look, I hear all these laws, but the ones I want were taken from such and such a volume, mm -hmm. and so I'll go there for uh, my citations and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, for by and large, did the permissions cost very much, or were they very difficult on... I actually was going through some email correspondence um, that somehow I've managed to save on my computer and I actually what I found were a couple of notes to Randy Bain who yeah. was the editor at the time uh, from University Press uh, submitting uh, requests for you know reimbursement for I think it was like three dollars for this for yeah. the New Hampshire Historical Society and two dollars for that mm -hmm. so no, and that was for the whole document uh, and permission to publish it. Yeah. Okay. On this issue of, you know, people, as you said, Alden, you know, skipping over, yeah. using these collections as references to go to the source, you know, as, as historians, we generally say, yes, that's, that's great. If you're going to write your own book, you should go right. as close to the source as you can. That's all to the good. Of course, students can't do that, and so sometimes collections like this get get put in this category of, well, this is this is a, a primary collection and it's fine, but it's it's for students and it's not for the pros, right? But there has been, especially in the last oh, decade or so, among increasing budget cuts and austerity and declining funding for a lot of researchers and programs, right? There's been more conversations about accessibility, right? And about what it looks to democratize our field in terms of who gets to have an opportunity to, to be a scholar and get access to these resources while maintaining uh, you know standards of good of good scholarship right at least from where I sit collections like yours they're not cheap but if they're in a library are when they're well done like nobody's nobody's saying we should be using shoddy, uh, you know, and some of these some of these sources that you you know were were cribbing from or were were improving on, have have real problems, right? And I think I think Dan, you would you would agree, and Alden as well. You we we all agree there's flawed ones, but when there's these good collections, uh, I would argue they can they can do a lot for uh, somebody doing a dissertation or a book who's maybe working at a state school somewhere and just yeah. doesn't have a research budget. Right. Mm -hmm to go to France uh, mm -hmm. if, their, if their book is not centrally about this, right? Where do you see collections like this fitting in these, in these conversations about, uh, about democratizing the field or about how we should be doing our scholarship in this era of, of reduced funding? Can I toss that over to you, Alden? <laughs> That's something I really hadn't thought well, a lot about. Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree that these can be very useful for students at, at, at any level or, or general readers if they want to see some of the documentary mm -hmm. materials on a particular topic. I think part of the problem is that originally these volumes were sold on subscription, that old-fashioned mm -hmm. method of, you know, you sign up when the series is announced and you get your volumes as they appear and you've paid perhaps for the whole package initially and so you're uh, in, in a sense have paid forward and so many uh, I was told by the publisher more than once 
that many of the subscribers were very annoyed that it was taking so long to get mm. these volumes out. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we did the best we could. But uh, today, I think it's no longer... I think you said that they're no longer published at all. No, I because I've been badgering my library to get these for several years now. I right. teach at Bridgewater State University. Yeah. It's a wonderful regional public school. Yeah. My librarians are awesome. And so they. I, I went to them and I said, look, you know, if yeah. we could... I actually just asked them to interlibrary loan these volumes because they initially said, well, well, we'll look to buy them. And they said, we can't, they, they're, we looked yeah. and they're not being printed anymore. They can't uh -huh. be bought. Yeah. Um, and so there's this limited amount of them now being circulated wow. around. Yeah. Last I heard, they were, I think it was LexisNexis, printed up that four-page brochure. Yes, right. Yep. I, yeah, that was like 10 years ago or right. something, I think. Yeah. And uh, I think it was like, it was around 3000 was what they were charging for the whole set. It wasn't yeah. a subscription at that point because mm, yeah, it was right all out. It was finished, yeah. Yeah, I think it was around 3000 yeah. for the set at that point. I'm just glad. So volume 20, I basically, so I did my PhD at, at Northwestern, and they had the full, most of the set in their library. And they had one of these amazing scanners that just took these beautiful pictures oh. from the like from aerial photos of the books you know yeah. and so i think i scanned about 90 percent of one <laughs> of your volumes dan and i've just got yeah. them all on dropbox on this file that i use now oh, yeah. um because it's too it for me it's too important to to risk not having it to hand if i if i can't own it you know you asked what uh question about mm -hmm. usage yeah you know, actually um my institution i recently retired from Truman State University, uh, which is a, a regional liberal arts college in Missouri. And we had the full 20 volume set. And we required our, our history majors. Uh, we were purely undergraduate at that, uh, for most degrees. They have to take, they have to take two research courses, one topically oriented, and then another one for their capstone course. And I always taught a Native American history survey research course. That was mm -hmm. the standard thing I did because it built up this collection. And they already had, since Truman already had this set, kind of an introduction to using primary sources, I would have the students just grab one of the volumes yeah, and select one of the documents and analyze it because they could check it out, they could take it home, they could, you know, go through it and play with it and I knew the material and it had some annotation. So it was a very, very, very useful teaching tool. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I did a an assignment for many years at other places I taught around one of my favorite things to, to study and it's a part of my future projects that the Casco Bay or Dummer's Treaty of 1725 to 27. And of course, your volume has a bunch of documents related to these series of negotiations. And so having my students just try and figure out what happened. And then uh, this was a few years ago, and I had them kind of try and decide who benefited most from how these mm. things turned out, uh, whether it was one particular colony or faction among the Wabanaki Confederacy or whatever. And they had about 70 pages of documents to work with, and we spent a couple weeks on this, and it was a real, it was a real puzzler for them. You know, it was, it was one of the hardest assignments I ever, I ever designed. Mm. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was having this set available, uh, these scans for them that allowed them to do that, with these annotations, of course. But to my, to my earlier question, I'm also curious your thoughts on 
colonial American history is in this liminal zone where, as we're talking about access to sources and primary sources, right, uh, especially in this era of, again, declining budgets and resources in a number of programs, some fields of history now, like certain parts of like African history and other, other fields that require study abroad for long periods of time, some of them only the the best funded or more prestigious programs can really produce grad students anymore who do this kind of stuff. And so that's kind of been the case for a while. U.S. history has been relatively open. And so programs that only produce somebody, you know, a small number of PhDs or something, usually it's in American history and it's more modern. Colonial is somewhere where in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of the arguments, you know, I think even when we were in grad school was, well, if you're going to be really serious, you should go to Europe, you should go to London, you should go to Paris, you should do something. And this is a really, especially with this emphasis, which intellectually makes sense on an Atlantic history, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be an Atlantic historian, mm-hmm. well, then, you know, get your, get your passport, yeah. right? And of course, that's great if your department can afford it. That's great if you don't have kids or something else. What then to do if that's if that's not the case? And so there have been, again, this is where I was interested in this conversation because of this is where you get, not to put a fine point on it, I was in a workshop uh, last year for, I believe it was some undergrads and grad students, uh, and there were various guests like me invited in to comment on these student papers on mm. Northern New England. And one of the guests was from a, a very prestigious university and mentioned somebody's work, and it was a, a dissertation book from a, a regional school that was, was a quite good book. And this, this scholar said, well, they didn't go to Europe, and, and basically implied that this person didn't go because they didn't care to, or they just weren't very yeah. curious or ambitious. And I thought, this is, this is kind of unfair and unfortunate. Mm-hmm. They used a lot of these. They went to Canada, they used a lot of French mm-hmm. sources, and the book is, is perfectly good and, and well-regarded, right? And this person sort of chalked them up to, well, they just weren't very ambitious because they didn't go to Europe. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts about how we think about best practices as historians for doing good history, but also in a way that you don't necessarily be, need to be affiliated with Harvard or Stanford to be able to do this stuff. And I choose those two schools because that person wasn't from either of those two schools. Wow. Well, considering... When I was a graduate student, I had to hitchhike up to Stockbridge to do the research for my master's thesis because I there were no fellow I didn't know of any fellowships mm-hmm. or scholarships or anything like that. And my program that I graduated from was kind of notorious for not having money for students. I guess to some extent, I kind of used to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I came out of graduate school before the whole shift to the Atlantic right. world paradigm. Where did you do your, your... University of Virginia. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, and situations have changed completely, of mm-hmm. course, and there is this new paradigm now on, on the Atlantic world. Yes. And Which, to listeners, talks about, and intellectually, it's very, you know, useful, talking about coastal Africa, Atlantic-facing Europe, and Latin uh, Atlantic-facing Americas as this interconnected zone. Which is great and useful and important, but also then means if you're going to do the scholarship of this, it implies also that potentially, ah, so where are you going next? Yes, and what language are you learning next? Right, Um, right. Which is both important and also 
raises further, uh, further, further hurdles for, for people to do, you know, t- cutting edge scholarship. Well, there again, the technology is changing enough mm-hmm. so that you don't have to, to go, go to England to use the PRO. In a sense, you can get it online. And much is it? I thought a lot of the PRO is still not digital. Oh, some yeah, right. Not, right. It's not not the whole the whole kit and caboodle, but right. uh, it's right. uh, you know substantial yeah. amount. And uh, and I suppose the same is true for French sources and so forth. I don't know where the limits are, but uh, mm. no, words, one can claim to have done the necessary scholarship. I think without uh, perhaps without leaving your own office, but you'd have to know your way around the, the sources available, but that's the help is available, sure. I think the, that attitude that you describe is unfortunate, yeah. right, um, and wrong-headed, because certain topics will require extensive travel, uh, and I think people are moving into that zone. I mean, I know of colleagues who are working on uh, issues related to slavery, are doing work in Portuguese and Spanish archives. Mm-hmm. And there have been some amazing, and most of that is about slavery, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been some amazing finds. I know of um, one about six years, seven years ago. Someone came up from some obscure, I think it was a Portuguese archive, found the list of uh, enslaved Africans who were the, on the first boatload intercepted by Dutch pirates and sold in Jamestown. Oh, wow. I didn't know there was a Portuguese strand to that it, whole story. Was, yeah. I think it was a Portuguese slaver. That okay. had the, and so that, yeah. that document naming right. them was in the Portuguese archives and someone doing wow. research came across that, right? I'm amazed that survived given the Lisbon earthquake mm-hmm. of 1755 that, you know, one of the greatest yeah. archival disasters right. in, you know, in modern history. Um, but interesting. Okay. And yeah. You have now people going to Dutch archives right. for the last mm-hmm. decade or so, turning up some pretty amazing stuff uh, that's kind of recasting our view of early North American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's great, but not everyone can do that. And if the work that you're doing as a graduate student particularly doesn't seem to require that it wrong-headed to say oh well you know you can't do the work or we shouldn't take seriously what you're doing right. because you lack the money to go and find mm-hmm. that those 12 that document in Portugal that you might have to mm-hmm. spend you know a month going through archives to right. find and you don't find that one document but yeah, I think I, it's going to depend on the subject that you're yeah. that you're researching. And yeah, we should we should separate. You know, learning languages is fairly that in most cases not that expensive, and that's something that like yeah, if it if you're if you're interested in something that involves a language, you got to learn the language. Like it is what it is. But like yeah, the the travel and living abroad and, and navigating some of these things is a is a different matter. Again, if it's okay. if it's depending on if it's relevant or not. And just to mention, because you're the listening, that your listeners may not be quite aware of this, there is a definite larger trend within higher education where first of all there's a big separation increasing separation between the major um, you know, the Ivies and the R one schools with funds. Yes. For that kind of thing and with the programs and 
liberal art colleges that are increasingly unable, lack the resources to be, to produce the graduate students. And of course, there's there's a decreasing market for history professors. We all know about that. Well, and we should add, I mean, there's a decreasing market for compensated history professors. There's yeah. a demand for history professors who are willing to teach at minimum wage, and they're called adjuncts, yes. where they are paid per class, and it works out to minimum wage. And so that's not the same as, so there's a demand for labor, it's just there's not a, there's not a, a supply of of jobs that are paying, right? But yes, your, your point is nevertheless taken yeah. in the sense that, and that's a, a related issue in the, the academy that people have accused the profession of turning into a pyramid scheme of using these graduate students to teach classes at the big universities and do a lot of the labor with the promise of a secure job down the road that is just mathematically not there anymore. And so these, these conversations of access are part of that, of course, because these dwindling number of jobs generally go to Ivy grads. And of course, you know, a lot of these people do great work. I think the issue is not that there's not great work being done with, uh, you know, funded trips that, you know, visit a bunch of different countries. It's that with enough money, you can take a very mediocre project and dress it up to mm -hmm. look more so because, oh, well, they look at all the places they went. There must be something here that, that, that they've said that it's worth doing, right? Or the idea that, well, if this project was really worthwhile and valid, why is it that you only went to the following places, right? All that I have to ask, I'm curious, you have, uh, since you were one of the, you were one of the founding figures of our of our field of serious scholarship by historians of, of indigenous relations with, uh, with colonizers. And I, this is not to uh, disparage anybody who came before you in any, in any way at all. I just mean that most of the people doing serious work were either not credentialed in, in history for, for various reasons. They were either anthropologists or they were, you know, occasionally ind indigenous folks who, you know, weren't, weren't in the academy. But, you know, your work in the 60s was one of these big entryways. But I'm curious, well, let me, let me backtrack. Richard White, who wrote uh, The Middle Ground, he said to me one of the things that stuck with me most from any historian, and he said, I'm not interested about talking about my book, The Middle Ground, anymore, he mm -hmm. says, because I wrote this big book about it. And anytime people ask me if I have something to say, I say, no, you can read my book, and I'm not interested in talking about this anymore. So Alden, you've written above all about race uh, in, in colonial America. I still assign some of your, your work. Do you have a Richard White moment, uh, a Richard White item where you say, you know what, if you really, I'm done. I think I'm, I'm good. I'm not saying the conversation's over. I'm saying I've said my piece and I'm, I'm finished with this and I will happily, I will happily go and have a soda while, while you read this book. Well, I, I don't happen to be one of those people who's somehow content with with what I've done and, and assume it just sits on the shelf and gets read. I keep finding fault with my own earlier versions of things. And so uh, I would love to have the opportunity to, to reissue anything I've ever written in a revised form. And I could, I think, make, in every case, make it better and make some significant changes. I mean, it wouldn't be just window dressing. Mm -hmm. It would be 
yes, I, I, I learned something from new documents or from uh, new perspectives on reading William Mary Quarterly and so forth. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm perpetually unhappy okay. with what I've written. Ah, well, in fact, you know, the, the, the most of what's in New England Frontier, for example, mm -hmm. was well, it would have been considerably revised in the second edition in 1979, if the publisher had allowed me free hand, but I was allowed to to change about five percent of the text. I see, and did, and then when the third edition came out in 1995, I wasn't given. I was allowed to, to write a new introduction and say some of the things that were on my mind, but I couldn't change the text. Hmm. And that frustrated me, but that was the deal that I was offered. I suppose for the, you know, the historians and historiographers among us, then at least we can say, well, this is where I was at the time. Yep. And so um, can I ask, and then I'll, I'll get to you, Dan, as well, I have questions, but then Alden, what... Whether it's an article or a, a book you authored, not an edited collection, what are you most proud of that you wrote? What are you most personally proud of? Well, I, th I think uh, probably, but it's a collection, but it's a collection of my work, mm -hmm. uh, Roots of American Racism, mm -hmm. because I think several of the essays in there hold up pretty well, mm -hmm. and if I were to revise, it would be mostly tinkering. I think the uh, uh, I, I was criticized considerably at the time for early on for insisting that that in Virginia the the first Africans to arrive there were enslaved from the start and the evidence was clear on that but for decades after I argued that line uh, a number of people working in the field insisted that uh, drawing on Oscar Hanlon and uh, from much earlier that no they're indentured servants so it took a long time before the laws of Virginia made clear that they were were uh, slaves and so forth. Well, which always struck me as odd because nobody's ever found any of these indentures. The, no, the idea right. that there were English people going to Africa and saying, "All right, everybody, yeah. would you like to go to Virginia yeah. for seven years?" Right. And you know, I have to say, your your uh, your article, "The Origins Debate," came out in '89. I used it until relatively recently to teach, Good. and the reason I stopped. So I had, uh, I had it where I had students read the origins debate and then Ed Morgan's article, his, his sort of address from 1972 mm -hmm. on American slavery, American yes. freedom. And the reason why I stopped doing that is because I couldn't in good faith call it a fair debate mm. uh, because your side, your, your arguments were just so much more convincing, especially to me. And so it was hard. I don't like to have false debates with my students yeah. where there's a trick question or something. Mm -hmm. And even though I should admit, I'm a Breen student, uh, yeah. T.H. Breen, and yeah. he was, he's of course somewhat more, you know, on the, he, he didn't believe there were African indentured servants, but at least yeah. in terms of a sort of more delayed arrival yeah. of racism in Virginia. And so I just, Tim and I don't discuss that. Right yeah. Now. And then I think it's in, in that essay, I point out that though uh, Tim's book is, was very well received and, and they, he and, and uh, I forget his co-author's name. but Stephen Innes. Oh, yeah, Stephen Innes. Uh, even though they did some very important work, uh, I think the book was, was overrated. Uh, and I, one of the Sorry, reasons, Tim. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. He doesn't listen to my yeah, show. Yeah, well, he, for example, doesn't <laughs> doesn't mention that every time the uh, 
African he's uh, citing as having won his case, his argument in the. In yeah. the there's always the suffix negro. Right. So it's a, well, that's yeah. He's he's winning some points in 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 early Virginia society. That's important, but it's also important that he's held in a lower status. He's singled out every time his name is mentioned. Right. That's not seems to me uh, unimportant. Anyway, yeah. uh, uh, John, uh, going through all of the archival material for Virginia, that there just aren't indentures. Uh, there were a handful, but very, very few. And, uh, and of course, uh, those who, who argued for uh, against enslavement in the early days were only dealing with the eastern shore. Yeah, it doesn't represent Virginia yeah. at all. Right, and that's important to note too. Yeah. Although I suppose the only counterfactual that's unprovable is if there were black Virginians who were not denoted with the parenthetical yeah. Negro, we wouldn't know if they're never called that. Right, and yeah. so hmm. you know, um, and I'm by no means a scholar of colonial Virginia, but like that always struck me for that. But that's unfortunately yeah. something we'll just never know because right. right um yeah dan you also i love this we have three generations of, of scholars here going down here um and so dan for yourself do you have a uh having spent so much of your career on a new england indigenous history i know you've now moved on to or your, your latest opus is on economic uh, equality more broadly, and of course we'll, we'll get to that, but do you have a Richard White mo- item in your repertoire of just, you know what, I'm, I'm good, I've said my piece? I haven't had that moment that people have said, why don't you do another one? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, somewhat ironically, I suppose, uh, there was... I don't remember who it was now, in a review, it may have been Jenny Pulsifer, uh, was reviewing Tribrace History, mm-hmm. which is my favorite book of uh, the ones I've done, although I hate, I, I hate the title, honestly. Did it at least break the tradition of having phrase, colon, explanation of what the book is about? <laughs> that was part of the deal, right? <laughs> it's um, like the rule. Yeah. Yes, right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that was Quip, colon, exclamation, Formulaic, explanation. Right. Yeah. A history book. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I, I do remember uh, the editor kind of asking for that, um, that that was something that came up. But in any case, so no one's said, you know, would you redo that, right? Okay. And in fact, what I've the way I've thought of those works is... It, both of them were new works. That is, no one had really, in fact, the, behind the frontier on 18th century eastern Massachusetts, uh, really no one had done that, right? It was the first, it was a forerunner into that. Jeannie mm-hmm. O'Brien was working on Natick at about the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Mine was the whole region and dealt more with networks. And so I, what I was hoping is that people would follow up on that, right, and do more. right. Um, and build on that, and to some extent that has happened on the 18th century. Yeah, there's a lot of really growing, exciting work about Algonquian folk in southern New England after King Philip's War in the 18th century. Right, right. Some very folk, folk, more focused, more detailed mm-hmm. one drawing on new 
uh, concepts and so on, and that's yeah. that's all great. Same thing with uh, Triberes history, which was the whole southern New England in the 19th century. Uh, you know, this is it's dealing with significant concepts of race and class, as well as survival and 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 shifting patterns of native life. As thinking, okay, it's done. Let other people now go on and do more with it, which hasn't happened as mm. far as I've seen. It may, it may, you know, it's. I don't think I would go back okay. and do more. I I'm move on and look at other things. Gotcha. Um, I'm right. trying to deal with, sure. and it's funny because I still love social history, making history breathe, making experiences, individual community experiences. Uh, live again to the reader is is and, and reminding readers of what it might have been like at that time for folks that's very exciting to me but now I'm kind of you know my age right uh, moving on and trying to do larger picture studies mm -hmm. uh, broader studies and that's actually why I did uh, lost tradition it's, you know it goes from 1600 to 1870 Kind of looking at broader things, and the project I'm working on now is trying to do the same thing, uh, dealing with the, uh, how Anglo Americans have have viewed and treated Native sovereignty over time. Oh, that's your next. Oh, that's right. That's I remember I was at that now. workshop. That's great. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of big picture stuff, but yeah. every once in a while I'll pick up a, a good social history like uh, Bob Gross's Mad. New, newly published massive work on, on Concord Transcendentalists, which is daunting in its size, but mm -hmm. you read through it and it's got that kind of, you're living and, you, you feel like you're living and breathing in that place and time, and I still find that quite, quite satisfying. On that note, I think sometimes, unfortunately, change over the profession is generally written about in, in the press or talked about as that, well... Our intellectual forebears are, it's implied they're disappointed by, by what has come later. And, and several forebears are singled out and said, well, this person's unhappy, therefore they all must be or something, which is, which is unfair. And so, you know, uh, Alden, your uh, Puritans and Indians was your dissertation book, yes, mm -hmm. in 65. So right. your, your dissertation book came out the year after my dad graduated high school. <laughs> He was, he, I, he did not have me after he graduated high school. I'm born in 83, so I am, I'm very much the, the, the later generation in this discussion. So I'm curious, of the scholarship on early New England that has come out in the last, say, 10 years or so, what has excited you the most? What has interested you the most some new kind of scholarship or topic that was looked at that maybe maybe you weren't doing in the 60s you're going you know what i'm really glad somebody did this and i i like where they're going with this well almost every issue of the william mary quarterly i mm -hmm. open up there's an article involving native americans in some uh, respect and, and very often zeroing in on it as as the focus that i am just astounded at how much the, the author has been able to glean from the old sources and some new sources, but, but reading deeper, broader, mm -hmm. uh, more perceptively, I think, than my generation did. And uh, I, I can't cite any specific articles okay. right now, but it goes on and on. And, and I think uh, uh, Lisa uh, Brooks's uh, 
volume on King Philip's War. Uh, Dan's book on King Philip's War is still my standby, but mm-hmm. but really what what Lisa has done with that is tremendous, mm-hmm. just tremendous. And and uh, yeah, there's some area for criticism, but it's just the the I think well, there's the area for criticism of any book. Yes, right. right. And exactly. I think the 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 scholarship is getting better and better and better. Dan, what about you? Especially, yeah, staying on sort of King Philip's War and Indigenous New England. Um, besides your your own work, of course, you know what uh, what is some work that's come out in the last ten years or so that really that you thought you were really excited about? Well, of course, I amen to Brooks's mm-hmm. to Lisa Brooks's book. On and this is um, Lisa Brooks, our beloved kin, a new history yeah. of King Philip's War. Also looking at so many non-combatants and these indigenous, yeah. you know, printers yeah. and sort of go-betweens was a really great book. And if you don't mind me saying this, a lot of the northern New England works that have come out since, you know, I was doing since Drybury's history and so on, the last 10 years. When I was looking up some of the, trying to find a good scholarly work on the encounters in northern New England, there was Ken Morrison's. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there was one other, and that was it. There's a couple yeah. really good dissertations that never turn into books. Alice Nash's Abiding Frontier. Which wasn't there when I was doing ah. the work on, on this series. Okay. It wasn't out yet. And then David Gear is yes. my yeah, I think I remember that. One of my all-time favorite unsung historians. He did a dissertation that was wonderful, came out in like 1990. It's called Abenaki Factionalism. It was one of my inspirations for doing my book that it could be done that somebody wrote about Mm. Wabanaki history after 1720 and he did several articles sometimes co-authored with I believe Alvin Morrison and then he tried he went to Minnesota did a lot of pedagogical work and tragically died far too young Oh, Uh, Mm. and so but yeah David Gere is always my sort of person that I go oh you know somebody you should read gotta go to the dissertation Mm. it's wonderful Mm. So there's been a lot of lot mm-hmm. more work done on northern New England, mm. um, which is, is wonderful to see. It's happening, you know. It's the I think because it's such a a vibrant, contested frontier. I don't want to gild it too prettily. It was also really violent, but it was you know vibrant and there was a lot going on for you know, almost two hundred years of well documented, more evenly contested and. Uh, interaction between indigenous folk and colonizers mm-hmm. that's well documented as well so it's almost like it's happening in slow motion so you can just look at it longer mm-hmm. you know or some ways or something mm-hmm. i have to ask alden did you uh did you meet or work with douglas edward leach the author of this like the very first really big right, right. scholarly and narrative history king yes for? yes and and i remember trying to track him down at a convention one time i never met him we corresponded a bit but i of course, his book had been out for a few years, but before I started researching mine, yeah. but I wanted to get, I just wanted to talk to him about sources and perceptions of and one thing or another. And uh, I remember going to a convention, AHA or OAH, and uh, went to the Harvard Smoker thinking he might be there. Douglas Leach, anybody seen him? Oh yeah, he was over there a little while ago. Well, and I wandered around, wasted a lot of time, never found him. Can I ask, the Harvard Smoker was a room where everybody went and smoked? Uh, a smoker in those days was a gathering of people and 
a large number of them probably did smoke. Oh, okay. But I thought it, this was literally like a room that they had. Okay. You no, know, and they okay. were sometimes they were advertised in. I don't think probably in the official programs of the conventions, but certainly if one sent out a notice to one's colleagues and graduate students saying we're going to have open bar at Friday at five o'clock. Is likely to be referred to as a smoker. Has come. Fair Just, enough. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, a good uh, term to get rid of. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my high school had a smoking room even yeah. when I showed up there because you know, cigs were still legal for eighteen-year-olds then, mm-hmm. and like yeah. it was still, you know, it was not. It was frowned upon, but they're like, well, they got to go somewhere, and so they yeah. they had a right. room for them. The, de- the definition, I think, would. It's very different now because I'm thinking there's a like Kevin Gannon and Jason Herbert who does the historians of the movies. Yeah. They're both really into smoking meats. Oh right. yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so now a smoker would be, hey, let's get together and and, yeah, and, and yeah. turn out a I set like of ribs, smoke a pig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about Leach just because I, you know, his is the first really modern scholarly history of King Philip's War, and I was just thinking how everybody still cites it anyway, even though he might have been, I, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but like he might have been more anti-indigenous than half of the Puritans that he's defending, which is pretty unusual. Rarely is the scholar defending bad people more negative in his char- characterization of folks than the people they're defending. But anyway, he still gets cited because it's very thorough on the colonial side. Right. And the thing, as much as I really respect about Dan's work of synthesis on King Philip's War and then so many of these other books. Um, I don't think anybody's written a book as comprehensive as Leech's about King Philip's War also taking seriously the indigenous humanity side of things and, and nuance as well. Dan, your work is great, but it is it is meant to be a much more synthetic kind of digestible short volume. Yeah. And Leech is, is much more of a blow-by-blow narrative. The problem, of course, is that he has very little sympathy uh, or interest in the, the Native American side of things. Uh, and I believe his chapter where the indigenous folks are doing really well is just called Dark Days. Uh, yeah. There you go. Okay. okay. You know, and he, I think his introduction, it came out in 1956, but he says something like, well, at a time when... When, when Africans are sadly taking back these colonies and, you know, and he viewed this as a bad thing. So, yeah, but, Sam Morrison wasn't likely to, to uh, correct, uh, to change uh, Leach's no, perception but, there. But in a way, Leach has been my standard of do work that's so good that even people who go, Ugh, I can't believe, I can't believe this person, they still cite you. Because yeah. if you need a narrative of what the colonists are up to in King Philip's War, Leach is still, he's still the one-stop shop for a, just a, a sort of just the facts, ma'am, of, of some of this stuff, right? And I, every time I read a new history of King Philip's War, part of me, the part of me that just really wants a really clear narrative, kind of hopes for like, are we finally going to get like a Native American 21st century version of Leach? And mine didn't, mine didn't clear that bar. It, was, it yeah. was as close as we've ever yeah. come, Dan. And this is not a, like, you know, your book is, is wonderful. But I mean, I, part of the problem, of course, is that the war defies linearity in some mm. ways. 
and and there's there's something to be said for how much order can you impose on disorder yeah. of events. Mm-hmm. And it, this is in no way a, a knock on, on your <laughs> King Philip's War well, scholarship it, at all. It was produced for particularly as a survey for sure so you know and i'm here i'm not the if i if i was the audience for books i mean that would thrill me but i'm not you know my complaints are always not enough maps and not enough detail and you know (laughs) sure and and the rest and so that's the that's always my my next hope is when are we going to get the the full-fledged story with leech's detail and everything else about bod but i don't know how to pronounce the same boge bod B-O-D-G, oh, yeah. the one on New England militia during the war? Oh, I mean, that's that's really good on New England militia. But, so, but the, I mean, Lisa Brooks's book is really good on King Philip's War. She says, this is not the indigenous history or anything else. This is yeah. a history, and I'm following certain people, and that's great. Uh, she's also very literarily inclined by her training, which is... Oh, you're, you're looking for the indigenous side that does the same thing... That with Leach, with his... Okay, got it. As yeah. much as possible. And yeah. we know, uh, like, like yes, and we should be clear that some of the silence and holes in the archives are created by violence. And so when we're saying, oh, well, what were some of the indigenous people up to, we'll never know because they were killed or shipped off to Barbados or something. And yes, we should be open about that. And, you know, we can't make things up. But to the extent possible, yes, um, there has not been a leech-ish approach to the indigenous side mm. of, what, of what was going on, as much as possible anyway. I mean, the closest thing, arguably, I mean, Dan's book of uh, some degree of, of synthesis, but it was for students, James Drake's Civil War in New England, mm-hmm. kind of makes some moves in that, in that realm of things. And again, maybe there's just not, maybe there's not a demand for it. Or maybe it's on someone's agenda. Maybe, maybe it is. Certainly not, not on mine. That's what you should. No, I was gonna say you no, should. No. Do. Um, I mean, I suppose doing a King Philip's War book. There's a lot of huge superstar names who've done it. That's kind of like a Civil War historian doing a Gettysburg book, right? Yeah, Where you got to right. kind of justify why you're doing it, right? right. I, I think now, if you're gonna write a book about King Philip's War, you do need to explain yourself. I think that the bar is cleared at that high enough where you got to say, okay, this is why I, Ian Saxine, feel that you need to hear from me about this thing that Lisa Brooks and Dan Mandel and all these other luminaries have written about. Maybe not. Maybe. Maybe. Or you say the water's warm, the more the merrier. Well, to to me, the what happens in the northern sphere of the war is, is still not fully fleshed out still there's so much there to explore that is a you know it's not a it's not a standalone story right yeah. right but it's a significant part and it actually one of the difficulties of dealing of course with king philip's wars how do you right. you know Phil, philip is mm-hmm. metacom's dead yeah. yes and yet this is going on still and it's clearly connected to the and then it just kind of fizzles you know there's this truce that sort of ends this the the, the war for a while until it whew, starts again so where do you if you're if you know history to a large extent depends on a narrative yes where, where do you draw the lines yeah. from the narrative you, how do you end it yeah. yeah well and i think where it's credit where it's due i mean jenny hale pulsifer's chapter yes. in yes. subjects onto the, we haven't onto mentioned the same her king yet, but that's and by the way her that book mm. is i think 
most of us in grad school have one or two books where you read it and you say, this is the kind of thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. For me, that was one of them. Subjects Under the Same King was, was what really opened my eyes to what, to what history could be and could do. And the way she said, no, if you look at this authority and what they're doing, I said, oh, wow, that's great. But her, her chapter in there about Maine, specifically northern New England, mm-hmm. uh, was phenomenal. And it yeah. was the most comprehensive to that point, I think, that it had been treated by. And there's been a few others. This conversation reminds me, in a way, of... I wrote a piece online for the Omohundro Institute's historiography reflections uh, two summers ago, through whatever the date. Mm. And it was on Fritz Jennings' book, Invasion yeah. of America which I read in graduate school, it was a reflection on when I read it, why I read it, what it meant to me, this kind of thing. And one of the points that why I wanted to write the essay and what I, brought, what I focused on was that, you know, when I read that thing, there was your book, Alden, there was Fritz's book, Invasion of America, and um, that was about it mm-hmm. on New England Native history. Um, Neil Salisbury's book hadn't come out yet, I think, at mm-hmm. that point. When yeah, Manitou and Providence was like yeah. 1980 or 81 or something? Mm, I 82? Was, this was like 81 okay, I was okay. doing the reading on. on so, but there was just so little to read. And then some articles, of course. So there sure. was just so little to read. And it since, you know, now, and when I wrote this article three years ago, whatever, takes graduate students now months or more to get through the scholarship. And so now we have to think, oh, yeah, Jenny Pulsifer's great book. Mm. That slipped my mind. Yeah, yeah. Because that is such a great work. Yeah. There are so many good works. Yes. So as we, uh, as we, as we wrap this up, I haven't had a wrap-up quite like this before, so I'm going to phrase it slightly differently. What is a new work of historical scholarship, whether it is, you know, an exhibit a book or whatever that you have that you've come across uh, of late that you think that our our audience should check out and we'll of course post links to this in our social media feeds as we always do Alden I'll start with you well I'm going to suggest a book that uh, says nothing about the state of Maine but uh, but being partly a Shakespearean uh, I found it fascinating it's a, a book published a couple of years ago, but I just got around to reading it very recently, called Shakespeare in a Divided America by James Shapiro. And it uh, takes various moments in the eight, uh, 19th and 20th and even into the 21st centuries where America is at a some sort of uh, internal or external crisis and it's reflected in the way Shakespeare is staged. It's a combination, I think, a beautiful combination of social history, theater history, and Shakespeare. Interesting. And uh, it uh, comes down very close to the present and perhaps half a dozen key points that he zeroes in on of tensions within American society that are reflected in stagings of... of, uh, various Shakespeare plays and so forth. And, yeah. right. Okay, great. I wish I had something as kind of, of a broad, broad interest. I, I was particularly struck recently by and, and moved and impressed by a book, a scholarly book I read, uh, Matthew Crewer's uh, relatively new book, I think it was last year, on um, uh, 
called Time of Anarchy. It's about the Susquehanna. It reconceptualized that region and that period um, to look at emerging conflicts and community formation and those kinds of issues. And I was just very, very impressed by that. And that's the thing that's impressed. That's the work that I've read over the last couple of years that's impressed me the most. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say this has been uh, a real treat. I would never in a million years thought that I would get to have a public history podcast that Alden Vaughn and Dan Mandel would be would be appearing on. It's it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Alden, Dan, thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's our show. Be sure to check out Dan Mandel's latest book, The Lost Tradition of Economic Equality in America. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you don't miss out on our book recommendations and other good stuff. We've got another episode out about the mysterious fake Vikings of 19th century Maine, why the real Vikings never made it this far, and why Mainers 200 years ago were so obsessed with them. That's next time on Mainly History.